Welcome to the Islam and Liberty podcast. If you enjoyed this show and would like to support us, visit islamandlibertynetwork.org. There is a donation button on the site. This episode, we have a recording of our 7th International Islam and Liberty Conference, the Islamic Case for Religious Freedom, held in Jakarta. Today, we have Amil Azuz, a member of Nada Shura Council and teacher of English language and literature in the Tunisian University. She is part of a panel. Religious Freedom and Constitutional Frameworks chaired by Fernandez Ispahani. Her topic is Religious Freedom in a Muslim Democracy, Case of New Tunisian Constitution. If you're interested in reading her paper, it can be found on our website at islamandlibertynetwork.org or in the show notes. Thank you for you, Mrs. Chairwoman. Assalamu alaikum. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Uh, I'm not an academic, I'm a politician. I'm just bringing to you uh, an experience that took place in my country. Uh, I don't know, maybe that would be a sort of a prototype, sort of anyway, that could be um, maybe an, an experience, a historical experience that others may find it important, interesting, but others may not find it. But essentially, it is important to see how things go on in my country. Okay, so th- this debate, the, first of all, you have the title here, Religious Freedom in a Muslim Democracy, the case of the new Tunisian constitution. I- I'd like to thank Ali Salman for calling this a Muslim democracy, uh, because here I am myself a member of another party in the leadership of another party, which we consider ourselves to be Muslim Democrats, okay? So uh, the case of the new Tunisian constitution. Uh, this the the question of freedom in a way it was a kind of uh, intellectual debate in the Arab world in the Arab and Muslim world and world especially during the 19th century half 19th century to the 20th century uh, especially with the question of renaissance why do the West advance and why do we lag behind that was a very crucial question and the question of the maqasid al-sharia and the question of individual freedom started to be raised from that moment. With the Arab raising in 2011, the same questions came to the fore again, okay? They came very forcefully to the fore. And in my country, in in Tunisia, after the collapse of uh, the authoritarian regime in Tunisia, for the first time, a democratically elected assembly representing all political sensitivities, sometimes profoundly antagonistic. In Tunisia, you know, I, I said it's, it's an example. You should know that it is a very homogeneous society. It's not, we do not have uh, ethnic conflicts or religious conflicts. It's very, very homogeneous. So this is one positive point, if you want. But we still have another sort of polarization, another conflict, secularists, Islamists on one side, okay, or leftists, secularists, and uh, Islamists. So, uh, for the first time in its modern history, uh, um, an elected, a freely democratically elected assembly representing all of these um, uh, sensitivities, sometimes very, very hostile to each other, agreed to ensure the primacy of law, number one, primacy of law, the respect of identity, of the Tunisian people and the Islamic values and the protection of the freedom of belief. So 
I myself, in my paper, I saw that uh, the role played by my party, by another party, is very important. Another party, a civil party with uh, an Islamic referentiality in such a consensus, there was a consensus, of course, is, is undeniable. The role the party played is very, very important. And this is due first to uh, uh, the political performance itself of the party and its option for dialogue and consensus and compromise, its openness to the others, which we will see historically, it is based in history. And second, because of the party's, if you want, insights and the way it addresses this relationship between reason and revelation, Islam and democracy, Islam and modernity, all of these questions have been addressed in the party's thought, the party's regulation the party's communiques and the party's writings. Uh, the first uh, uh, question here in my paper, the question of freedom in another conceptual framework. I said another was the majority party in the parliament in the constituent assembly, which is very important as well. It was also leading the government at that time. So politically and constitutionally speaking, the role it played was very important. So the question of freedom in another conceptual framework, number one, maqasid al-shari'a and the dialectics of reason and revelation. Uh, after the, the fall of Ben Ali, of the authoritarian regime in Tunisia, the question of identity constituted one of the most controversial post-revolution Tunisia, one of the most controversial issues. Uh, it was also, I was myself a member of the, that constituent assembly, it was one of the questions and the first problems we as deputies in that constituent assembly addressed uh, in, in, in our examination of, uh, number one, the social pattern, what, what social pattern we're going to ad adopt in Tunisia. Number two, the nature of the state, what kind of state you're going to have. And number three, the referential, uh, referentiality, I'm sorry, of the legal system. Such a controversy was settled thanks first to dialogue, as I mentioned earlier, and peaceful and consensual res resolution of disagreements, and second, to the nature of the intellectual insights uh, themselves of Nahda. These insights uh, have been expressed time and again in the communiques, in regulations, in writings, long, long, long before the revolution. It means starting, uh, the party started in the 80s, so 30, more than 30 years ago. Another uh, belongs to that uh, school of thought which believes in the togetherness of reason and revelation and which causes this uh, um, causes them to be in uh, a sort of uh, horizontal dialectics they are in usual in, in, in interaction uh, this perspective is summarized in uh, the, the party's uh, regulations issued from the party's 10th Congress. Ladies and gentlemen, the party's 10th uh, Congress is one of the most important in, in its history, in another's, in our party's history, because it dealt, is, it addressed many, many uh, important issues, uh, among which, for example, this uh, question of uh, the, the, the nature of the party itself. I'd like to quote here uh, a, a paragraph from these regulations which will be very, very telling. The differentiality of the party relies on an innovative reading rooted in Islam's major original references, namely the Quran and the correct Sunnah. 
benefiting in this from the Islamic cultural heritage and the large human knowledge achievements. It also believes that the implementation of the Islamic rules and the instructions in real life cannot be done mechanically in all the situations. It should often be done on juristic deductions, what you call ijtihad and take into consideration the purposes or the maqasids allowing to avert evils and procure benefits. Al-masalah, dar al-mafasid wa jalb al-masalah. Within a moderate inferential, inferential approach, joining reason and revelations and balancing between plain reason and correct transmitted, transmitted scripts. The Muslim Democrats in Tunisia see that from a sound Islamic perspective and in a Muslim country, there is no collision between the referentiality uh, and the intent of the revelation of the Quranic text, of the script, if you want, and the referentiality of the reason and interest, al-maslaha, al-masalah. Here, building, I mean the party, building on the innovative uh, vision of al-maqasid as a uh, uh, initiated by Ash-Shatibi in his Muwafaqat and uh, by uh, especially by Ibn Ashur because you know Tahir Ibn Ashur is a Tunisian he's one of the scholars who developed this theory of goals Islamic theory of goals he's Tunisian so we benefited a lot from this theory of goals uh, as initiated by Ash-Shatibi by Al-Ghazali and Ash-Shatibi and then later on by Ibn Ashur the Islamic movement in Tunisia considers that, so building on this vision, they consider that freedom is the major essential value that encompasses all the other social values. And I have written in my, uh, I began this uh, epigraph if you want, our intellectual project is built upon one value which, with which we entered political life, dot, uh, colon, it is the value of freedom. I'm quoting Rashid Al-Ghannoushi. So man's worshipping God in our vision, man's the worshipping uh, of God, uh, the contracts man concludes and even his own human humanity are meaningless in the absence of freedom. All of these are meaningless in the absence of freedom. Uh, another movement makes sure that this intrinsic value becomes a central pr principle and a beacon determining all the attitudes, the ideas, and the conceptions upon which the social project it aspires to is built. The social project we aspire to should be built on this value. Um, the party's rules of procedures mentioned, uh, this is not new, I, I have, I keep repeating this, it was not only, <laughs> anyway, I have to skip, so, um, so here, one of these human rights guaranteed by Islam is the freedom of belief, uh, or the religious freedom. There is no meaning, I'm quoting Ghanoushi, no meaning for a belief that does not stem from freedom, insists Ghanoushi. Ibn Ashur himself cons considers the princip of, principle of there is no compulsion in religion as a guiding and an absolute principle. Uh, now the 
compulsion, no compulsion in the religion. Here, Ghanoushi defends the principle of freedom in both sides, in the freedom of getting in religion and the freedom of getting out of religion as well. As there is no meaning in a piety, in a religiosity, if you want, that is built on compulsion. So there is no interest for the Muslim ummah uh, or community in adding a hypocrite who harbors disbelief and shows belief. So there is no need in this. Uh, of course, Ranushi has um, in many occasions written about the necessity to reconsider uh, and to reinterpret the question of the apostasy as a religious crime. He said it's not a religious crime. He distinguishes between an individual apostasy and the political collective apostasy. He quotes or he speaks about what happened during Khalifa Abu Bakr and he said that th that was a kind of rebellion against the state. It was not apostasy in, in, in um, the sort of uh, people uh, getting back to worshipping, idol worshipping, for example. Um, okay, I have to skip a little bit, so... Um, uh, another's intellectual conception of freedom is reinforced by a broader belief also in the compatibility of Islam and democracy. Values of freedom, justice and equality can only be achieved in a democratic system based on the association of freedom and citizenship. The second part, very quickly, religious freedom in the Tunisian new constitution from a sharia to the liberty of conscience. Very briefly, after the revolution, after uh, 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 the fall of... Um, before, just before the revolution, we have this uh, tradition of dialogue and, uh, if you want, problem resolution uh, in Tunisia between the different elite, the intellectual elite, secularists, communists, uh, nationalists, uh, and we have this famous uh, coalition, 18th of October Coalition for Rights and Freedoms, which ratified three important documents. One document about gender equality, the second about the, 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 the relationship of the state and politics, and another one about the freedom of belief and conscience. This dialogue ratified by all the, sen the sensitivities, political and ideologic sensitivities, it paved the way for the constitution afterwards. This means that long before the revolution that was in 2005 and 2007, this political elite have had this very insightful dialogue which paved the way for consensus and compromise in, uh, in uh, uh, the constitution. Um, however, in spite, uh, I'd like to quote one of the important uh, uh, things written by this coalition of the 18th of October. So, uh, elements of consensus upon the freedom of conscious. This freedom implies the right to adopt. This is before the constitution, before the revolution. It was signed and ratified by the different parts. This freedom implies the right to adopt or not a religion and to affirm the convictions of one's choice. The document also, this is very important because we're going to discuss afterwards is the freedom of conscience, is liberalism, is liberty something universal? Shall we just apply it the way it is applied in the West or should we speak of some specificities? That's a very important question. The document, this uh, coalition document, underlines the necessity to ban between citizens equal in rights and duties any form of discrimination founded on religious belonging or the convictions. Although, although it strongly refers to the international human rights conventions and documents, the document emphasizes the fact that 
Universality is by no means synonymous to standardization. Hence, the necessity taking into consider of taking into consideration and respecting diversity. Uh, there was a battle over identity immediately after the revolution. You will tell me, but there is, there is a dialogue and there, there was consensus in this, in this coalition between the different ideological and, and political uh, uh, um, sensitivities. However, the moment Ben Ali left and the regime fell, we have, we come back, uh, uh, the secular elite thought this was the occasion to complete the secularization of the state started by Bourguiba and Ben Ali, etc. On the other hand, the Islamists, on the other hand, believed the revolution was the convenient time to disqualify what they perceive as westernization and secularism. So we have this polarization again, okay? And we have people start to speak about al-sharia in the constitution. However, in Nahda, put an end to this controversy by uh, uh, saying it would not adopt a sharia in the constitution, and by saying that the Tunisian laws themselves are inspired from Islamic laws, and that the consecration of a sharia in the constitution is in a way an application of its uh, consensual article number one. Article number one of the Tunisian constitution states, Tunisia is a free, independent, sovereign state. Its religion is Islam. Its language is Arabic. For another, this is very important. So, and the already, the jurisprudence existing in Tunisia was inspired from the Islamic law. So there was no necessity for a Sharia in the constitution. Moreover, the notion, the concept of Sharia itself is controversial. And in constitution, we put only what we agree upon. We do not put what we disagree upon. And people disagreed on the interpretation of uh, a Sharia. Uh, I finish with this. Article 6 now and the logic of compromise. Uh, the crux of the matter of this uh, historical compromise. Why did I call it historical compromise? Because we moved from a battle over identity and over Sharia in constitution or no Islam at all in, in, the, uh, in the constitution to an article which guarantees the freedom of consciousness. Of, of conscience, I'm sorry. So you see, you see this move from one extreme to another. That's why I called it a historical compromise. The crux of the matter in this historical compromise reached in the process of the constitution drafting can easily be summed up in this move from the desire to include a sharia and the constitution as a major source of legislation to the adoption of the principle of freedom of consciousness. Article 6, I'd like to read it for you because it is very important. The state is the guardian of religion. It guarantees freedom of conscience and belief. The free exercise of religious practices and the neutrality of mosques and places of worship from all partisan instrumentalization. The state undertakes to disseminate the values of moderation and tolerance and the protection of the sacred and the prohibition of all violation thereof. It undertakes equally to prohibit 
and, uh, uh, and fight against calls for takfir. So on one hand, fight calls for takfir, and on the, on the other hand, uh, protecting the sacred. So there was, people would see in this a sort of uh, uh, contradictions, conceptual contradiction, but in reality, it was the logic of uh, compromise, how we can agree, how we can, I can respect what you want, and you respect what I want. Anyway, I'm so sorry, I, I finish by saying that uh, such questions are very, very important intellectual questions. They cannot be only resolved by legislators and politicians. In Tunisia, it has been, such question has been resolved by politicians and legis legislators, but they need, within the elite, they do believe in them. What we need is how to implement such values in society itself. It is a societal dialogue that would take time, media, the constitutional court, education, uh, civil society, a solid civil society, all of these should take part in implementing the uh, question of uh, freedom of belief and conscience. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you, good afternoon, Salaamu Alaikum. Um, I have two questions. The first question will be for Mrs. Amel Azuz. And it was a very interesting uh, discussion when you said that uh, in the Constitution it says inspire, or the Islamic law, Sharia, inspire the Constitution. We have similar thing in Indonesia uh, when in 1959 there was a presidential decree saying that Jakarta Charter, which basically says the obligation to perform Sharia in Indonesia, inspires and thus part of the Constitution. So, I'm a constitutional lawyer, and it intrigued me to ask, what does it mean, the word inspires? Thank you very much, Ms. The Lawyer, okay, for your question, for a very insightful question. Uh, Sharia, okay, I said in my uh, presentation that one of the reasons why in another, for example, um, refused to... Um, to put Sharia in the Constitution is that it is a controversial word. The way people uh, interpret the word is different. For example, let's, let me give you, uh, Mrs. Chairwoman said you are lucky in Tunisia, you are a homogeneous society, but still we have other sorts of problems. We have a very, very sharp polarization between secularists and Islamists. Okay, so in, in the French, uh, secularism in the French Jacobian uh, extreme secularism. So uh, uh, they, for example, they see other people, normal people, and the other, the other, if you want, ideological parties. So they see that Sharia is hudud. Uh, this is how they understand Sharia. We in another, and I suppose many other Islamic movement, they see that all of these, all of those, uh, 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 the system of values. We see in the world they belong to uh, a Sharia. Social justice is from Sharia. Equality is Sharia. Perseverance is in Sharia. This is how, this is the inspiration of Sharia. This is what we see as Sharia. Uh, uh, human dignity, freedom, liberty, all of these, for us, this is what, uh, what, what has been, of course, presented as the theory of goals or maqasid. This is how we understand as Sharia, okay? This and this is what I said, the inspiration, inspired, the constitution itself is inspired by this uh, system of values. Actually, just one question for Honorable Amil Azuz about 
the constitution of Tunisia constitution article 6 where uh, we can see there are two dichotomy of laws so it's just a simple uh, how do you balance up or strike the balance between the two uh, of the article 6 in order to accept the balance uh, between the, this kind of two first uh, as what was mentioned by you uh, you to exercise uh, the freedom of conscience for example but at the same time you have uh, the issue of to prohibit uh, fight against a call for takfir and incitement of violence so how to strike the balance is there any doctrine of reasonableness or proportionality in your context of law I'm so sorry the beginning of your question could you rephrase I'm so sorry okay, I, didn't, no problem. I didn't get the point okay Please. Uh, you mentioned about the article 6 of Tunisian constitution where uh, the first, uh, uh, it is stated about the freedom of conscience and belief. Yes. But at the same time, uh, to prohibit, you mean, uh, it means uh, to prohibit the uh, and fight against calls for takfir and incitement of violence. Yes. So there are so-called two dichotomy. First, freedom. Second, the limitation. Yes. So is there any way of how to strike the balance between these two? Yeah, in, f in fact, there is an article in the Constitution, of course, which is Article uh, 49, and uh, of course, which says we cannot touch, I mean, these restrictions cannot touch the essence of the freedom itself, unless, unless it threatens uh, uh, social, like the Article 19 of the Human Declaration of Rights. Okay, you do uh, 18, I suppose, or, or 19, of the International Human Declaration of Rights, so which puts limits, but that, that do not touch the essence, jawhar al-hurriya, the essence of freedom itself. So it is uh, uh, providing it doesn't touch the, uh, 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 the ethics, ethics of society, okay, okay or the uh, social peace, voila. Social peace, it doesn't threaten social peace and security of the country. So these are the only limits which apply not only to the freedom of conscience but to, to other, uh, other, uh, other freedoms. Thank you for the opportunity. This is for Amel Ajis. Uh, my name is Rafifa from Fatayat Nahdlatul Ulama. If I'm not mistaken, I've heard that you're also politician. Yeah, so, I am. Uh, do, you mean, do you mind to share us about uh, how a woman uh, which is engaged with the politics in your country are they also uh, face some obstacles uh, such as uh, gender uh, related to gender uh, matters or uh, religious and also uh, cultures? Thank you. And also? Culture, religion. Some obstacles, which is uh, in, in culture, uh, culture and religion. Okay, yeah. uh, thank you, thank you. Although this is uh, out of my paper, but uh, I, if you permit, Mrs. Chairwoman, yes. Okay, you know, dear lady, that in Tunisia, uh, to compare to other to other Arab countries, especially, is a little bit forward in the question of uh, women's emancipation. It's been for a long time. I mean, uh, Tunisian women have been in the public sphere for a long, long time, okay? With the revolution, the revolution ha has brought them to the fore even more forcefully, especially to the political sphere. For example, let me tell you that in the uh, uh, Tunisian National Constituent Assembly, uh, we constituted uh, 30 or more than 30% of, we have this uh, male-female parity law. It is thanks to legislation, of course. I do believe that legislation is very important, but still they are not enough. 
education has helped a lot. Now, 70% of uh, the uh, of those who get graduated from university in Tunisia, 70% are women. Imagine. Now, we have women everywhere, but still, still. Uh, in uh, in the leadership of parties, for example, we do not have them in executive uh, positions. In the government, for example, out of um, 40 ministers, we have only three or four women, for example. But we have them in the parliament still. We have them with the same, thanks to, thanks to legislation, of course. But still, we need much more to work on the mindset, mentality of people themselves, okay? Uh, because still, we still believe that women are not really made for the big missions for for a minister, a, a, a president of the government, for example, or anything like that. Okay, but comparing to many, many, many other countries in the Muslim and the other world, and even in the European world, we we are we compare to them. I, I saw many parliaments in Europe, for example, which have less than uh, we do in Tunisia. Number the women deputies, for example. Eh? I've been lucky enough. I was there for your recent election. I was there in 2014. You are such an impressive people. And I saw so many women out of the pool. If you enjoyed and would like to explore more, visit IslamandLibertyNetwork.org. You can also support us through a donation button on the site. Thank you for listening to this podcast.